Hello and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 26th January 2024. This is Ian Haydock. In this episode, Bayer's Pipeline Refresh, J&J's Selective Pharma M&A Approach, Silver Lining for Gilead's Tradelvi Miss, Paying for Obesity Drugs, and the story behind Vertex and CRISPR's gene therapy breakthrough. Bayer's Head of Pharmaceuticals Research and Development, Christian Rommel, acknowledges that the conglomerate is working its way through a difficult period. But he oversees an R&D pipeline that needs more time to show that the company's investments in technologies like chemoproteomics and cell and gene therapies will pay off. It's a big ask for investors who have been waiting for Bayer's strategy to deliver significant returns. We are in a resilience phase, Rommel told Scripps Mandy Daxon in an interview during the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. We have to renew the top line, we have to rebuild the pipeline and maximise our current opportunity. But I'm excited and very confident looking forward to what's going on, and it's not always recognised, but that's okay. The German giant's challenges do not come down to its pharma portfolio alone, since much of its financial disruption is due to ongoing litigation in its crop science business following its years-ago acquisition of Monsanto. Bayer announced on 17th January that it will implement significant job cuts, including many layers of management, to reduce costs and make the organisation operate more efficiently. However, the company's agreement with its German employees did not come with an endorsement of any kind of a plan to separate its businesses into separate companies. Operating on its own would not immediately change the pharma group's revenue growth prospects. Stefan Ulrich, who's president of the pharma division, noted in his presentation at JPM that the company's top seller, Zarelto, will go into a three-year period of major decline in the short to mid-term as the anticoagulant faces growing generic competition. At the same time, Bayer still has high hopes for its late-stage portfolio. Prostate cancer drug Nubeca, Carendia for chronic kidney disease in type 2 diabetes, Elinzanatan for vasomotor symptoms associated with menopause, and Asundexian for stroke prevention. However, Bayer stopped a phase 3 trial of Asundexian in atrial fibrillation in late November and ended development of the factor 11A inhibitor in that indication. Another phase 3 study in stroke prevention is ongoing, but Rommel noted that the Asundexian opportunity is now smaller than previously anticipated. Nevertheless, I like where we started, 2024, Rommel said. He noted that established late-stage assets in Bayer's portfolio are performing well, including ILEA for wet age-related macular degeneration and diabetic macular edema, and Nubeca. Then also, the pipeline in the cell and gene therapy area has now gotten momentum, Rommel said noting that Bayer is targeting larger indications such as heart failure and Parkinson's disease. I think this is incredibly visionary and bold. We don't know whether or how this will work out, but I would give credit to an organisation who has the courage to take these new modalities into such unmet needs, he said. Johnson & Johnson reinforced its business development strategy during the company's fourth quarter sales and earnings call on 23rd January. CEO Joaquin Duato told investors that M&A remains core to pharmaceutical portfolio growth and transformation. The company, which is now a two-sector business after spinning out consumer healthcare last year, 
has completed some larger-scale M&A on the medtech side of the business, Jessica Merrill writes. But Duato insisted the company is also interested in building out the pharma business through business development. In the case of pharma, our preferred mode has been trying to go to assets that were proof of concept, so generally speaking, from a size perspective, it's been about deals that have been either of a smaller size or have different modalities, like licenses or partnerships, Duato said. However, J&J has completed a wide array of deals in pharma that don't get a lot of attention because of their smaller size, he said. The firm deployed more than $3 billion on 50 smaller licensing deals in 2023, he noted. The thing is that the headlines are only made on the ones that are M&A, so we've done multiple deals in our pharmaceutical side in order to be able to enhance our existing portfolio, he said. Duato pointed to J&J's licensing deal with South Korean biopharma company Legochem Biosciences in December as an example of the deals J&J did last year. Under that agreement, the company paid $100 million up front for development and commercial rights to Legochem's TROP2-directed antibody drug Condiate, and then also followed up with a bigger deal in the ADC space in January, which was the $2 billion acquisition of developer Ambrix Biopharma. Are we looking broader than that? Yes, we do. But mainly, we find more opportunities to create value at an earlier stage, Duato said. Chief Financial Officer Joseph Volk said the company remains well-positioned for reinvesting in R&D and business development while maintaining its dividend to shareholders. J&J generated free cash flow of more than $18 billion in 2023. It delivered solid fourth-quarter and 2023 financial results in line with investor expectations and sales for the full year increased 6.5% to $85.16 billion. A key late-stage clinical trial of Gilead Sciences' antibody drug conjugate, Tradelvi, has failed, raising questions among analysts about its position relative to its competitor, Daiichi Sankyo AstraZeneca's Datapotamab Deroxtecan, or DATO-DXD. But the results were not seen as entirely negative, given that Evoke-01 was in a difficult population where DATO-DXD has also seen lacklustre results, Alaric Diamond writes. Gilead reported on 22nd January that the Phase 3 Evoke-01 trial comparing Tradelvi, which targets TROP2, against docetaxel in patients with metastatic or advanced non-small cell lung cancer that had progressed on or after platinum chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibitor therapy, did not meet its primary endpoint of overall survival, despite showing a numerical improvement in patients with both squamous and non-squamous histology. There was also a more than three-month OS improvement observed among the subgroup of patients non-responsive to the last prior anti-PD-1-L1 therapy, who represented more than 60% of Evoke-01's population. By contrast, prior anti-PD-1-PD-L1 responders did not show such a magnitude of response. The company said it plans to discuss the results with regulators and explore potential pathways to further understand the role of Tridelvi in those patients who did respond to therapy. Gilead noted that Evoke-01 is just one part of the overall trial programme for Tridelvi in NSCLC, which also includes Phase 3 trials with Keytruda in first-line settings. We have many opportunities in lung cancer and we remain confident in and committed to 
exploring the potential of Trudovi in metastatic disease, the company told Scrip. Trudovi is in neck-and-neck competition with DATO-DXD, another anti-TROP2 ADC, which failed to show survival benefit in a similar setting. But the bigger issue for DATO-DXD was safety, specifically some fatal events of interstitial lung disease. In its 22nd January announcement, Gilead pointed to the numerical OS benefit for both squamous and non-squamous patients, as well as the lack of new safety signals, including ILD, in Evoke 01. Tradelvi's lack of ILD had already been seen as a potential advantage for the drug over DATO-DXD. Despite the Evoke 01 results leading to a sell-off, some analysts said the negative market reaction was overblown, pointing in particular to the apparent efficacy in both the squamous and non-squamous patient populations. Despite the unbridled enthusiasm for new obesity drugs, which are expected to drive pharmaceutical sector growth, along with delivering weight loss and related health benefits to patients, Paying for the long-term use of the chronic treatments in widespread patient populations is going to present an affordability crisis, experts said at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. Obesity was a big theme throughout the meeting, with nearly every big pharma company admitting it would like to find a way to elbow its way into the therapeutic area, currently dominated by Nova Nordisk and Eli Lilly, Jessica Merrill writes. However, paying for broader use of the drugs is going to present a challenge to healthcare systems, one that will play out over time and may require innovative reimbursement models, panellists agreed at a keynote session on the topic. There's always going to be a desire to cover brilliant, innovative medications, and then you take a step back and say, all right, what is this doing to our budget over a period of time, said Dan Mendelson, who's CEO of Morgan Health. Paying for Novo's GLP-1 agonist, Wagovi, and Lilly's GIP GLP-1 agonist, Zepbound, will test Medicare, state Medicaid programmes and employers, Mendelssohn said. Medicare does not currently reimburse obesity medications because the category of drugs is excluded under law, though that restriction is expected to be overturned by new legislation eventually. Only around 10 state Medicaid programmes currently reimburse for the treatments, according to the panellists, and only a small number of patients who could benefit from the medicines are using them, due in part to the reimbursement challenges and also supply issues. But navigating reimbursement for obesity drugs so far has been challenging, said Diana Thiara, who's an obesity specialist at the University of California, San Francisco. Every insurance company has their own set of requirements. They're oftentimes opaque about those requirements, and they don't actually always mirror evidence-based medicine. It's just a very frustrating process all around. JP Morgan analyst Christopher Schott said analysts at the bank are forecasting peak sales in the therapeutic area could approach $100 billion in the US alone, but questioned if there could be a limit to how much one drug class can represent as a percentage of overall healthcare spending. We can make choices as a society about what that is, Institute for Clinical and Economic Review President and CEO Sara Iman said. Can we stop paying for something else in the healthcare system? Do we raise premiums and taxes? Do we do more cost shifting to patients, she said. I'm not saying these are popular ideas or ones that I even endorse, but it's not like we can just print $100 billion to pay for this.
Finally, among the many innovative new medicines launched in 2023, one approval stood out in terms of innovation. Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics Sickle Cell and Beta Thalassemia Gene Therapy Casgevi, the first CRISPR-edited gene therapy to reach the market. The story of how Casgevi was developed is a remarkable one, not least because of the exceptional speed with which it has reached the market, taking barely nine years from when CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex began working together. So why was it that Vertex and CRISPR emerged as the clear frontrunners ahead of their rivals who also started investing in CRISPR-Cas9 technology around a decade ago? We weren't the only people who went after sickle cell disease with a genetic therapy, commented Vertex's chief scientific officer, David Altshuler, to Scripps' Andrew McConaughey. And it's true, some of them started before us, some started afterwards. Comparing CRISPR and other new medical technologies to a new tool or hammer, he said, their arrival often sparks a race to find some nails to hit. But he believes Kasjevi being first to cross the finish line underscores the fact that drug development success relies on a lot more than technology. It's not just about the tool. It's also how you conduct preclinical development and clinical development and how you do manufacturing is critical. Sam Kulkarni, CRISPR Therapeutics Chief Business Officer at the time, convinced the Vertex that they were the right cultural fit based on a shared determination to focus on addressing a medical problem and mapping out practical steps to solve it. While Vertex had wanted to in-license its technology, the partners settled on a 50-50 partnership in December 2017. Kulkarni said at the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine meeting in San Francisco in January that there are always issues of a cultural match between a small company that wants to move fast and a big company that wants to do everything with their own processes to make it more robust. With Vertex, we've had a great partnership, and one reason is that we've had alignment at the top. One of the most common pitfalls to beset the field has been the difficult switch to a commercial-grade product for later studies after having generated early proof-of-concept data using a gene therapy product based on small-scale academic manufacturing. The partners agreed to create a plan to avoid these issues. We said, let's just start with the commercial process from the get-go. That allowed us to move much faster than other companies going after the same sorts of edits and disease state, Kulkarni said. Read the article in full for the backstory behind the therapy, the development strategy, clinical trial design and also how the two companies managed to beat their competitors to the market. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. All these stories are linked in the description below and they're just a part of Scripps' global coverage last week. Log in to access all of our content or sign up for a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.